0: Thanks for listening to this message. For more information about The Exchange, visit www.theexchange.cc. Or you can visit us for one of our Sunday gatherings each Sunday at 9, 15, and 11 a.m. Well, Prairie View A&M University is located in Prairie, Texas, uh, and is home to the Fighting Panthers football team. Uh, Prairie View's been playing football since 1907, and since then they've racked up 10 conference titles, sent multiple players to the NFL, and been to over 50 different bowl games. However, the statistic that Prairie View is most known for is a stretch of games and seasons that didn't go their way. Uh, If you're familiar with Prairie View, in from the 1989 season all the way through 1998, over the course of nine different seasons, they lost 80 straight football games 80 straight games setting a new NCAA record for the number of consecutive defeats in a single span in fact their record of 80 straight losses was so impressive that they almost doubled the previous record of 44 consecutive losses by Columbia University for nine straight seasons the Panthers and their fans saw nothing but defeat And perhaps their worst year was 1991. We get this over the course of the whole season. The whole season, they scored 46 points. And you thought your offense was bad. 46 points while giving up an average of 56 points a game. For those of you who are not into football, that's bad. That's really, really bad. Finally, during the 1998 season against Langston University, Prairie View A&M stopped a two-point conversion during the final moments of the game to beat Langston 14-12 and end their 80-game losing streak. I wonder, have you ever felt like your life is kind of like Prairie View A&M? Now, I don't mean have you felt like you're cheering for Prairie View A&M. Okay, we're not going to go there this morning. But have you ever felt like your life is kind of like Prairie View and a and 80 straight losses across nine different seasons. You know, the reality is, I think, for more of us than maybe care to realize, so much of our life feels much like that. It feels like defeat. Maybe it's defeat in your marriage, defeat at your job, defeat in your finances or your health, or defeat in your relationship with your kids or with your parents. You know, over the last few weeks, we've been in this series called Undefeated. And we have admitted that life is a battle. Life's a war. Scripture even compares our life to a race. And the reality is that we are fleshly people living in a world that is more powerful than us. And because of that, as a result of that, much of our life feels like defeat. It does. And maybe you can think about moments or days, even from this past week, that felt like defeat for you. The the weight and the pressure of this life seemed like more than you could handle on your own. And so over these few weeks together, we've been looking at one of the most powerful chapters in all of God's Word, Romans chapter 8, to talk about how to live life undefeated, if you will, or how to live life victoriously over sin and over our flesh and over suffering and ultimately through love. And so if you've got a copy of Scripture, we're going to go back there again today. So go ahead and open up with me Romans chapter 8. I um, would love for you to track along whether you've got a hard copy um, or a digital copy. But Romans chapter 8 is where we're going to be. Um, If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, we've looked at the first 17 verses of Romans 8 and talked about how to live victoriously over sin and over our flesh. So over sin and over our flesh is where we've been the last couple of weeks. If you've missed either one of those, uh, man, I think the truth is very applicable to every one of us. And so you can go back and catch up online or also on our podcast. But today we're going to kind of take a turn and go in a different angle and and look at a different truth, a different calling out of Romans chapter 8. And that is how to live victoriously over suffering. If you weren't with us last week, here's the last verse that we read. Romans 8, excuse me, Romans 8, verse 17. This is what we read last week. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So last week, we ended with that verse. If you were here, you remember that. And man, it was a really, really hopeful place that we ended it. We said, hey, if you're in Christ, then guess what? Not only are you a child of the family, but you're also an heir of the estate. And it's not just that you come in as any heir, but you're co-heirs with Christ. And that's where we ended last week. But if you look at the end of verse 17, we didn't get to this last week. Paul kind of takes a turn to another idea that's not quite as hopeful sounding. And that is the idea of experiencing suffering. You see, what I know is that I don't have to take a poll. I don't have to ask you to raise your hand to find out if you know something about suffering. Because all of us have experienced suffering on some level or another. Maybe it was the loss of someone close to you. Maybe it was a failed marriage. Maybe it was a fallout with your family or a difficult season with your parents or with your kids. Maybe it was a job struggle, a financial issue, a health problem. Or we can list a thousand different things that would fall into that category of a struggle in this fleshly world that we live in. So today I want us to look at the next few verses of Romans 8. We're just going to pick up right where we left off. And I want us to see what I believe is going to be an incredibly encouraging passage about How to be victorious over our suffering. It's a passage that God has used personally in my life um, during difficult seasons. And so my hope for you today as you listen is that it will help you as you recover from a period of suffering, as you currently experience a place of suffering, or maybe ultimately as you prepare for a season of suffering that maybe you don't even know is coming. And so today we're going to go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Now, I think there's a couple of different truths that we got to realize, kind of ground rules for today, that we got to understand before we dive into Romans 8. All right, And here's the two truths that we got to understand. The first one is this. All suffering is not from God, but can be used by God. All suffering is not from God, but can be used by God. Here's what I mean. I believe God is sovereign. He has full control over all things. right. And there are times where he allows things to happen in our life to get our attention. And we're going to go there today. But there are many times where suffering is brought about either one by our bad and unwise choices or two by the fallen world that we live in, where sin is very present and sin is very active. Okay, for some of you, perhaps right now you're in a season of suffering. We could say that with your marriage, um, with your finances, maybe with your own physical health. When the reality is, you've not made an investment in your marriage. You've not made wise choices around your finances or your physical health. And as a result of that, you're in a place of suffering, all right? And that would be suffering that might be brought about by our bad or unwise choices because we're fleshly beings. The second place of suffering that I think that could come that we got to acknowledge before we dive in today is that it comes from the fallen world that we live in, where sin is very present and sin is very active, Okay. Every day there are people who have their lives taken from them or their lives changed because of senseless acts of violence and crime. Not because of anything that they did, but their lives now experience suffering. They know suffering because they live in a fallen, sinful world that we're all in. Okay? So I don't believe all suffering is from God, but all suffering can be used by God, including the bad and unwise choices that we make and the sinful fallen world that we live in. I believe our God is sovereign over all of those things. And I think we're going to see that um, today as we dive into Romans chapter 8. Now, the, the second thing I want us to realize is that this message is going to come across to two different groups today. It's going to be heard in a couple of different ways. For one, if, you, if you're in Christ today, not meaning have you attended church, have you tried to be a good person, and have you grown up in the Bible Belt? Because most of us have that checked down. But have you surrendered your life, your old life of sin and self, and surrendered that to Jesus to go, God, I want to follow your way for my life, and I want your spirit to be known in me. And if you're in that boat today, then my prayer is that this will be a message of great hope for you, even in the middle of suffering. Because even in following Christ, suffering will be present. But there's a second group. And for some of you, maybe if you're not in Christ, all right, and you're living a lot more to please self right now than you are to please Jesus and to do life God's way, then my hope for you is that you hear a message of hope that can be available to you should you choose to trust Jesus with your life. And so two different crowds today. And and in Romans 8, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see four different truths, Four different truths about how to live victoriously over suffering. And so let's go Romans 8. We'll pick up with verse 18 where we left off last week. Romans 8.18 says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Verse 19. For the creation waits with eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So here's the first answer, if you're taking notes, that Paul gives us on how to live life victoriously over suffering, and that is to adopt an eternal perspective to adopt an eternal perspective. Now, if we're going to get to that place of adopting eternal perspective, Paul gives us two really good truths, two two kind of staples to hang on to as we look at these verses together. And that is present sufferings and future glory. Present sufferings and future glory. Paul says, I consider that our present Sufferings are not worth comparing with the future glory, or NIV said, the glory that will be revealed in us. You see, Paul was a guy who knew what it meant to to suffer. This is not some guy who's excluded from suffering who's writing this to us. Paul was thrown in prison, if you know his story. He was thrown in prison for literally just preaching about Jesus, okay? That's a guy who knew suffering. But he got to the point where he said, I've realized when it comes to suffering, there are two different viewpoints and perspectives that you can take. You can take that of present sufferings being what we see and what we understand and what we know now, Or you can take the viewpoint of future glory, the the eternity that is available for those who are in Christ. And so it's either way. See, in in essence, it's kind of like this. Paul's saying that there's a snapshot view of your suffering, and then there is a wide range, whole timeline view of your suffering. It would kind of be like this. It would be like going to a two-hour movie, all right, you go to a two-hour movie, and you go and you sit in on one minute in the middle of the movie, and then you walk out and someone asks you to write a review for the movie. Now, I think we could all go, like, that's crazy. Like, that, that's impossible for that to happen. That cannot go down, at least accurately anyway, all right? And so Paul says, hey, in that same way with our suffering, we only see the one-minute clip view of our suffering, while God, on the other hand, holds the script of the entire story of our life into eternity, and Paul says, I've come to realize that in the midst of my suffering, there is a joy and a glory of eternity that will be so much greater, that will make the, the momentary sufferings of this world seem so small. And here's what Paul says in, in another book, 2 Corinthians 4, 17. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Now, let's get this right. This doesn't mean that that suffering brings about eternal life. That's not what Paul's saying, but he is saying that there is an eternal promise in Christ that far outweighs whatever your season of suffering is. And then in verse 19, Paul paints this picture of all of creation waiting with expectation, like a child who can't go to sleep on Christmas Eve, or like an adult waiting on UPS to bring their Amazon order, right? We've been there. And he says says, creation is waiting, and he says all of creation waits for the children of God to be revealed. Now, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, that could sound a little bit confusing because you're like, hey, if those who are in Christ, aren't they already the children of God? Why are they waiting for them to be revealed? Here's what Paul is saying. He's, He's saying, yes, that's a true statement that those who are in Christ and who choose Christ, they become the children of God. But he says that full reality cannot and will not be seen and known until Christ returns and until we know eternity in that moment. He says that's when the children of God will be fully revealed. And then Romans says creation waits for something else because right now creation, meaning all people and all things, live in frustration. Or we could say live in defeat. You see, if you look back and trace things all the way back to the beginning of time, the beginning of scripture, we see that God does what? In the Garden of Eden, he creates all things with a perfect purpose and a perfect plan. It was a utopia. And in that moment, in Genesis chapter 3, if you know anything about the Bible, you probably know the story of Genesis 3 where Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman, what did they do? God said, here's my plan, here's my purpose, and everything is just right. And they said, no, but our way is better. And they choose to walk away and rebel against the plan of God. And we've been doing that as humanity ever since. And in that moment, right, in that moment, creation and humanity fell with them. And since then, creation and humanity have been trying to work their way back to the place of perfection that God designed, yet we are not able to on our own. And since that moment, creation and humanity have been subjected to suffering thus we find ourselves in the place we are today and that may be a difficult thing to swallow and to think about but paul says in verse 20 check out god's purpose behind this it says god allows that that suffering with the hope it says that creation will return to him to know the freedom and the glory of being children of god He waits for creation to return to Him. You see, while Satan longs to use the pain of our present sufferings to point us away from Christ, God longs to use the power and the position of our present sufferings to point us to Christ and to give us an eternal perspective. The great Martin Luther said, if we consider the greatness and the glory of the life that we shall have when we have risen from the dead, in other words, those who are in Christ It would not be difficult at all for us to bear the concerns of this world. You ever rewatched a scary or dramatic movie that like you've seen at least one time before? Some of you rewatchers in the house. You realize that when you watch it the second time, you ever notice that it's not quite as scary. It's not quite as dramatic. And the more and more you see it, the less dramatic or the less scary it becomes. Why is that? Because you know the end of the story. And Paul says here, when we choose to adopt an eternal perspective, all of a sudden the sufferings of this world, as grim and as difficult and as painful they may be, they begin to take on a whole different light because we begin to understand the end of the story. And First Peter chapter 4, verse 13 says, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. And that's a foreign thought. Rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. So the first way that we find victory, that we live victoriously over suffering in the most difficult places of life is that we choose to adopt an eternal perspective. And that's that's hard for us to do as temporary fleshly beings. But Paul goes on. Go back to verse 22 and let's pick up where we left off. Paul says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship and the redemption of our bodies. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. But hope that is not seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Here's the second truth that I think Paul lays out on how to live life victoriously over suffering. And that is to live with expectant hope. To live with expectant hope. In these four verses, Paul just kind of further expands on this idea of waiting and expectations. And he says, hey, in the midst of suffering, man, if you're in Christ, you can choose to live with expectant hope. And then he compares our waiting. He, He gets real blunt. He says, compares our waiting to that of childbirth, the pains of childbirth. Now, I cannot personally say that I know the pains of childbirth, okay? Have not done that, all right? But I do know that four years ago, I stood in the delivery room as I watched my wife go through some of the most intense pain I've ever seen her endure in her life. And that was one of the longest hour and a half or so of my life and definitely of hers, all right? I had the easy role in that. But in the midst of that great suffering, in the midst of that great pain, we waited with expectation. We had expectant hope for what was to come. And again, Paul says, he says, creation and humanity are in pain and suffering because of the sin and the brokenness of our world and the effects that it has. And we've all experienced that. Yet hope is on the horizon because Jesus will return and he will restore all things back to the way that he has designed it. Therefore, live with expectant hope. And then in verse... uh, Twenty-four, I believe it is. Yeah, verse 24. Paul makes mention of those who have the first fruits of the Spirit. And what's Paul talking about? Well, he's alluding to those who have chosen Jesus and God's plan for their life. And as a result of that life, as a result of that choice, they have the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, living in them and guiding them and correcting them. That's what we talked about in the last couple of weeks, the power of the Spirit versus the flesh. And it's as if those who are in Christ, it's as if those who are in Christ have kind of a preview tasting of God's Spirit that leads them now. It's a preview tasting of the buffet of God's glory that will be available in eternity. You see, and as God gives us His Spirit, those who are in Christ, it's a deposit. It's a guarantee of what is to come that He will adopt us, that He is redeeming us, and that He will finish that work of salvation into eternity. It begins now, but it goes into eternity, so therefore we can live with expectant hope. And here's some amazing news, that part of that redemption, part of that being restored back into God's family and adopted in, Paul says, is the redemption of our bodies. That's what verse 23 says. That God has not forgotten even our physical bodies in this story and in this plan of redemption. His plan for our bodies is called resurrection, where our temporary, limited, insufficient bodies will be exchanged for for an eternal, immortal body to be with Christ. And here's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 53. He says, for the perishable, ourselves must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. See, when we live with expectant hope, we realize that the coming of redemption, God's story and his adoption into our family does not only affect our souls, but it will ultimately affect our physical bodies. And then he goes on to talk about in verses 24 and 25, he talks about hope, the hope that we have as believers. And and I think if we're really honest, we could say that in our culture, in our world today, in 2016, we hope, okay, we hope in a lot of different things, don't we? Like we, we hope in our family, we hope in our finances, we hope in our knowledge, our talent, our schooling, uh, we hope in our job, we hope in a political party, okay? Many of us hope in 18 to 22-year-old college students who chase a leather ball around a big green pasture, okay? We put a lot of hope in those places. And if we're really, really honest, a lot of times those hopes in these temporary things many times let us down. They do not fully fulfill us. As much as our hope is there. But Paul says here, he says in in the original language, what he's talking about is that hope is defined as a desire for some future good with the expectation of obtaining it. And hope could be defined here as a confident expectancy. A confident expectancy. Now let's realize, okay, let's make something clear. We're not saved by hope. We're saved by faith. Yet hope accompanies salvation hope is a part of the package deal life in christ doesn't come by saying well i hope that god will forgive me for all those mistakes i made back in college and high school salvation doesn't come by well i hope that i've done enough good things that god will love me and accept me well i hope i've I've, I've lived up enough to honor the big man upstairs so that i get the joy of heaven when this thing's over with Like, that's not where salvation is found. Salvation is found in faith, by faith, in grace that God gives us through Jesus, but it comes with hope. It is so that we can live with hope. But here's the unfortunate reality that I see far too often. For many people, it takes getting to the place of hopelessness, of a life without Christ, before they ever begin to realize the hope of living a life with Christ. And I think the theologian G.K. Chesterton said this, and it matches up so well. It says, hope means hoping when things are hopeless. As long as matters are really hopeful, hope is mere flattery. And it is only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength. You see, for followers of Jesus, hope is not merely a concept. It's not just a good idea or a whim or a feeling but hope is a person and hope is the unrivaled undefeated person of Jesus and no matter what your hand of suffering may be and what it may look like you can choose to live with confident expectant hope realizing that Jesus does not fail and Paul affirms that in Romans chapter 5, verse 3. He says, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. How could you do that, Paul? Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance brings about character. And character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame. How can you say that? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So how do, how do we find a life of victory in the midst of suffering? Well, we adopt an eternal perspective, and we choose to live with expectant hope. In a world of fleeting hopes, we choose the one solid hope of Jesus. But then Paul goes on, verses 26 and 27 of Romans 8. This is what Paul writes next. He says, hey, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, Now, we don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Verse 27. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Here's the third answer, and this is big. To live life victoriously, even in the midst of suffering, we should pray with confidence. Pray with confidence. Now, we probably maybe get the pray part right, but the with confidence part carries so much weight in this. Paul says, he says, God's spirit helps us in our weakness. In other words, the, the God who created us and who sustains us, he realizes that in the midst of suffering, whatever that looks like, it oftentimes brings us to our weakest point. And in that moment, God does not abandon us. He does not turn his back on us. In fact, he knows how we might respond. And there's scripture says what? In the midst of that, many times we don't know what we ought to pray for. And Paul realized that himself. And he says, hey, we, we, we're addressing that here in Romans 8. Have you ever been in that place? you ever been in a place so difficult you didn't know what to pray for? You didn't know the words to use. And Paul says here, hey, in that place where our weakness and our suffering will take us to God's spirit, the Holy Spirit in us intercedes or prays on our behalf. It's kind of like this, this picture, if you will, of a parent walking aside alongside their child who maybe has a speech problem. And, and their, their child has trouble saying or delivering their words. And the whole time, the parent's lovingly guiding them, helping them, giving them knowledge, and perhaps even sometimes mouthing the very words their child's trying to make. And Paul says that's what the Spirit, God's Spirit does for us, that he welcomes up our prayers and offers them in a clear and communicable form to God the Father. And Ephesians 6.18 says this, Paul says, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. You ever thought your request was crazy? Paul said, no, go for it. God's listening. And with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's People. Now, I think one of the things, that it's, Paul says it there in verse 30, one of the biggest things that God's Spirit does for us when we pray is that He aligns our prayers with the will of God. Okay, because here's the deal. As fleshly people, our desires for ourselves, for our family, for the situation that we're in are not always best, especially in the midst of our suffering. Remember, what do we say? We, we see the snapshot. We see the one-minute story. God holds the whole thing. And many times our prayers, as fervent and as passionate as they may be, were many times not what's best for us and not what's fully in line with God's plan. So scripture tells us, it says, the best prayer for you to pray in those moments is, God, if it be your will, you sit sovereign, you sit in control. And so if it be your will, he's the one who not only holds supremacy over the present, he's, he's got the one minute story, but he's got the whole thing. And so we begin to pray that. And for some of you, even though you can't see your way out of your suffering today, perhaps you can begin to pray your way out of your suffering. And for a long time, maybe you've been praying and you felt like nobody was listening But Paul says here today, he says, no, you can pray with confident hope that not only is someone listening, but if the God of the universe is in your situation and he is in control and you can pray with confidence and hope, no matter what's going on in the middle of your suffering with your family, with your job, with your health, with that depression, you can begin to pray, God, if it be your will... And the Spirit of God will couple up your prayers and offer them to the King of the universe. So pray with confidence today. In the middle of our suffering, three things we've addressed. What? Adopt an eternal perspective. Live with expectant hope. And finally, pray with confidence that God hears and that He welcomes the cries of His kids. The last three verses that I want us to look at today are verse 28, Romans 8. This is what Paul says next. This is a verse that a lot of us are going to be really familiar with. And Paul says this, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Verse 30, And those He predestined, He also called. And those He called, He also justified. And those He justified, He also glorified. And here's the final answer that Paul gives us to live life undefeated and victoriously, even in the midst of great suffering, and that is to trust God's finished result. To trust God's finished result. Paul gives us perhaps the, the greatest reminder, maybe of the whole chapter right there in verse 28, in that verse that is familiar for so many people, when he says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Don't you love that Paul didn't just say he works in things? He, he, he doesn't just work in occasional things, he doesn't just work in the logical things, because that would be how we might work. But no, Paul says, no, God works in all things. In other words, he is sovereign, he's in all the time kind of god he it does not take days off okay there's no vacation season for him he is fully locked in to creation and to his children and into the plan that he is working out paul says our job isn't to figure out the end but our job is simply to love god where we are and many times that is so difficult to do but that is an eternally freeing promise for those who are in christ to trust his plan, and to realize that he is the master architect who takes the chaos and the mess of our lives and he creates it and molds it in such a way to bring about a good plan and a perfect, finished, final result. Now I realize we quite often, as you read verse 28, it says that all things work together for good. We realize we quite, we quite often interpret good from a temporary earthly perspective. While God, on the other hand, interprets and sees good from an eternal perspective. And so we realize that we can trust his plan. Paul's not saying that whatever happens is good. Paul's not saying that tragedy and suffering are good. He's not saying that everything will work out if you just have enough faith. Paul's not even saying here that we will be able to understand why God allows tragedy and suffering. No, that's not what Paul's saying, but Paul's in, eff- in essence looking at all the mysterious, broken, painful areas of our life to hold up a sign that says, quiet, God at work. How? Why? We don't always know. But as we read Scripture, we can realize it is for His glory and for our salvation good, and it is a perfect plan with a perfect final result. The commentator uh, Ray Pritchard makes an interesting point about Romans eight twenty eight, and we'll put this up on the screen so you can track along. In the King James Version of Scripture, verse 28 starts this way. It reads, all things work together for good to them that love God. Go over to the New American Standard Version, and it reads this way, God causes all things to work together for good. And then the New International Version that we read just a moment ago reads this way. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Now, Pritchard brings out this difference that while the King James Version, the first version there, puts God at the beginning of, or excuse me, at the end of the verse, the more modern translations of the NASB and the NIV put God at the beginning of the verse. Now, ultimately, this is just a matter of interpretation. But here's the point that Pritchard makes that I believe is so incredibly relevant to us We never properly understand this verse and this part of the character of God as long as we put God at the end and not at the beginning. Because here's how many people perceive life. Man, it's just a roll of the dice, and sometimes it goes your ways, and sometimes it doesn't. And man, when it doesn't go your way, like, you can call on God, and he'll be there, and he'll just fix everything at the end. But that's not the biblical view that Paul lays out. No, Paul says, no, God is very present at the beginning. Oh, he's completely present at the end, and he is there in every situation in between. And he is working in all things at all times for your good and for his glory. Scripture is clear that the end result, what is that end result? You can trust it. What is it? That God is working in the life of every single believer to continually transform us into the image of Jesus, which is how he created us in the first place. There's a quote from the writer and theologian Edmund Hebert It's kind of lengthy, but this is what it says, and I think it's so true. It says, God is ever at work to reproduce the moral image of Christ in his children. All that now comes into their lives, he uses for their good to further that glorious goal. And his aim for them now is not to make them happy, materially prosperous, or famous, but to make them Christ-like. And he now uses all things The sad as well as the glad, the painful as well as the pleasant, the things that perplex and disappoint as well as the things that eagerly they strive and pray for to further His eternal purpose for them. And in His infinite wisdom, He knows what is needed to bring about that transformation. That is a sovereign God. That is a perfect Father Stories told of a woman who was studying and trying to wrap her mind around this concept of God working and refining us and purifying us even in the midst of suffering and difficult seasons. And so this woman went to visit a silversmith to try to learn more about the process of refining silver. And when she visited the man, the first question that she asked him was, sir, do you sit while the work of refining is going on? Do you sit or do you stand? And he says, oh, yes, ma'am, I definitely sit, because I sit with my eyes steadily fixed on the furnace. Because if the refining time is exceeded in the slightest degree, the silver will be damaged. And in that moment, she began to understand more clearly the beauty and the comfort found in the picture of God as our refiner, as our purifier, that when God sees it needful, He will walk His children into a place of testing. But the whole time, His love and His wisdom are fully intact, and they are fully in control because He knows exactly what we can bear. And it's not that our sufferings come at random, but they come in such a way that God sits in control and he sits in supremacy and he sits in a place creating a perfect final result. And Before the woman left the silversmith, she asked one final question and she asked the man, when do you know the process is complete? And the silversmith smiled and said this, that's quite simple. The refining process is complete when I can see my own image in the silver. So you may not understand why you're in a season of suffering today. You may feel hopeless in the middle of suffering today. You may be ashamed and hurt by some of the decisions that you made that led to the place of suffering that you set in today. You may not understand how and when this season might end But the promise of Scripture today is that if you will lean into the perfect plan of the sovereign all the time, in control, God of the universe, you can trust that He is working in you and through you to create a perfect final result for your good and for His glory that will allow you to be victorious over and in suffering. Thanks again for listening to this message. For more information about The Exchange, or to find out how you can connect with or support what God is doing, visit www.theexchange.cc. Now go, be the church, and give life.